It's good to see all of you tonight. And we are headed for Easter. And I want to remind you that we usually have around a thousand more people than usual. Now, that means people, we call them the community. You know, there's four circles. There's the community, and that's people that visit on Easter and Christmas, and most of the time they don't know why. And then there's the crowd, those who come from time to time, maybe once uh, a month, the crowd. And then those, there are the committed. That's the third circle in. We're headed towards the core. There's the committed. And the committed have committed. They're no longer just visiting or making like a bee and visiting several different flowers, depending on what mood they're in. Hello? Or restaurants, what restaurant you want to eat at this Sunday. Now here, you're the committed, because it's Wednesday night, so I'm talking to the choir here. But then there's the core. And the core are people who are being discipled. So we want you out of, out of the community into at least being part of the crowd. But then we want to pull you in closer to the third circle, committed. But our real goal is to get you into the core, discipled. Now, you, you do not have a better chance at getting somebody in church to see whether or not they can become a part of the crowd than Easter. So take advantage of it and invite somebody. Think of who to invite and invite them. Just get out there and say, you want to come to church? I mean, four services. They can do one of them, right? Saturday night, six, and then the usual hours uh, Sunday morning. And, um, you know, we'll have, we'll have upwards 2,500, 3,000 people that weekend, maybe more. And so, and, and a lot of them will get saved. A lot of them will get saved. So, amen? Now, this is the last night for a while that we're going to be dealing with tough questions, tougher answers. And um, next Wednesday, I won't be here because I'm going to be getting ready for Easter. But then after that... The, the Wednesday after Easter, we're going to start a brand new uh, teaching series that I'm going to give you, all of you are going to get a little book, your own little book, let, booklet, and you're going to make notes in it, it's going to be yours, your name's going to be on it, you're going to leave with it, you're going to get to keep it, you're going to get it free, and it's going to be a life-changing series, eight-week series, and I'm going to teach it. It's going to be filmed for posterity, we're going to show this uh, upstairs forevermore till Jesus comes. Um, but I'm going to teach you here, myself, live, starting the Wednesday after Easter. So I want to encourage you to be here because you're going to get something free. Everybody comes for something free, right? <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, we just thank you right now for the blessing of God on the house of God and thank you, Lord, that your word is always true. It always renews our minds. It always changes us, rearranges us, renovates us, and makes us more like Jesus. It's a faith builder. It builds our faith and enhances our hope. And so, Lord, tonight, speak to us. Renew our minds. Change us. Give us wisdom from above. Now, church, breathe a prayer and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. 
And just so you'll know, if you're a visitor, I don't have to sit on a stool. I'm in good shape. I I just do it because I I like the feeling of being in a big living room and and informal. So I do like it. It is nice. So anyway, but it's not that I can't stand. I just want to make that clear. I'm very good. I rode today 10 miles real quick. So I'm good. I just wanted that to be clear because rumors start. He's on a stool now. No. (laughs) Uh, I want to deal, the questions I want to deal with tonight, there's two of them. And as usual, if I I finish in time, I'll take some questions from you, which takes guts. Because I never know what you're going to ask me. And I got to have the Holy Ghost on me. And so if you've got any questions, theological questions only, don't ask me about me or my dogs. Not, nothing personal, but theological Bible questions, I'm going to try to answer them, okay? Now, I'm going to deal with questions that I've been asked about the most misunderstood sayings of Jesus. I don't think anybody's more misquoted than Jesus. And I'm going to deal with, with two Uh, of his teachings that are misquoted all the time. And that is the other cheek teaching and the don't judge teaching. How many of you have ever been told, the Bible says don't judge? Come on, raise your hand. The Bible says don't judge. Have you ever noticed they don't know the Bible, they never go to church, but but I'm jumping ahead. But how many of you ever wondered, what did Jesus mean by turn the other cheek? Because I don't like that. That doesn't bless me. Come on. I mean, I mean, have you ever wondered, did Jesus, did Jesus, is he all about raising up a bunch of, uh, you know, wimpy people who, who lay down and just let you beat on them? Is that what he was saying? I, so let's read it. What did Jesus mean? The question came to me by turn the other cheek. All right, let's look at the verse itself and, and start there. It's in the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what Jesus said. Matthew 5, 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. How many of you like that one? Come on, we're in Texas. Tell the truth. All right. That's Old Testament. Now verse 39. But I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. And when they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask, and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. I'm going to tell you right up front, I don't like any of these. <laughs> Unless I understand them. It's when we don't understand them that these, those, that teaching just repulses our flesh head to toe. I don't like it. Now, what these verses are called is the law of retaliation. This is Jesus' teaching on the law of of retaliation. Now, first, the Old Testament law, Jesus quotes, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, was given to direct judges to inflict penalties precisely equivalent to the offense. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You take somebody's eye, I take your eye. You knock out my tooth, I'm knocking out your tooth. You steal my donkey, I'm going to get your donkey. Equivalence in retaliation. Do you see? Retaliatory equivalence. Now, that was the Old Testament law. It was given 
to stop over-the-top retaliation. Like you take out my tooth, I'm going to take out your life. Okay? It stopped, it was given to stop over-the-top vengeance. It was given to, to nip vengeance in the, in, the, in the bud, as Barney would say. That's Barney Five on Andy Griffith, in case some of you don't know what I'm talking about. I have to remember there's people here that don't even know what Andy Griffith is. God bless you. I still watch the reruns all the time. Um, so it was, it was given to make retaliation fair. Now, I want to just point out what Jesus did not say with these words. But I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. Another version puts it, resist not evil. Here's what he's not saying with those words. For instance, Jesus never intended to teach that we are to sit back and watch our families murdered. Okay? Or be murdered ourselves. Or allow some very grievous harm to come to us without resisting. Somebody stabs you, we are not supposed to say, oh, stab me again. On this side. Okay? You, all of Jesus, particularly, well, not just the Sermon on the Mount, but much of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, must be taken in balance and oftentimes held up against what the rest of the New Testament teaches, or you're not going to understand it. <clears throat> so he was, he was not telling you and me to go against the law of nature, which is to defend yourself. Everything God made defends itself. I wrote down here, even an ant defends itself. Amen. Everything God made. Nothing God made just lays down and says, go ahead and, and kill me or hurt me. Nothing that God made does that. And Jesus is not telling us to be pacifists to the point that we don't defend ourselves. As we read on, we find that Jesus immediately explains what he meant to communicate by giving us four examples. And each one of his examples has to do with giving up our rights. And four kinds of rights. And I'm going to show you what they are. Jesus is talking about giving up our rights. In a given context. For the glory of God. Amen. And I'm going to give you four kinds of rights. And I've got to tell you again. There's hardly a more difficult message for our rights obsessed culture to receive than what Jesus lays out here in his Sermon on the Mount. We're, we're, we're perishing. We're choking on rights in America. I mean, we're in a litigious culture. People are being sued for looking at somebody else wrong. Uh, everybody's screaming about, I'm offended. You stepped on my rights. I want an apology. I want you to repent. I, I want you to make it right with me. Uh, uh, we're all about our rights, but not Jesus. Jesus is going to show us that in, in certain contexts, we are to lay our rights down and trust God. Now, let me just show you. First, he mentions the slap on the right cheek, which is all about the right to self-worth. We might say self-respect. He said, but if anybody slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, I've read that, I've read that my whole life, and it always bugged me. Really, Lord? If somebody slaps me on my right cheek, really, I'm supposed to turn 
and say, well, go ahead and hit this one while you're at it? Is that what he meant? We have to understand that sometimes Jesus would use exaggeration, hyperbole, to make a point. Let me ask you a question. Did he really mean for us that if our right eye offends us, to pluck it out? But that's what he said in Sermon on the Mount. If your right eye offends you, pluck it out. And then what about cutting your right hand off? He said if your right hand offends you, cut it off. Did he really mean that? Because there would be a whole lot of limbless people walking around. <laughs> and a whole lot of blind people walking around. If, so, so are we to take everything there literally, folks? Come on. No, he's using exaggeration to make a point. Unfortunately, throughout history, people have done those things. Taken out an eye, cut off a hand. But that's not what he meant at all. Now, notice that he says the right cheek. I don't believe that Jesus ever wasted a word, ever. Or missed saying what he meant to say. So, how many of you in here are right-handed? Well, let me just ask this question. How many are lefties? We got a lot of lefties in here. But most of us are righties, right? Okay. So think with me for a minute. If you struck another person with your right hand, you're going to hit their left cheek, not their right cheek, right? If I slap you being right-handed, I'm going to hit your left cheek. I'm not going to hit you on your right cheek. Follow me now. Follow me. For a right-handed person to strike the right cheek, it would have to be a backhanded strike, right? Like this, the back of my hand. Which brings us closer, I believe, to what Jesus probably had in mind. He's referring to a common practice of his day that was considered to be a great insult to another person. A backhanded slap on the face was intended to cause harm to a person's dignity, not physical harm. I can't do a whole lot of damage doing this. If I'm going to get you with all of my strength, it's going to be this way. This way, I can't do as much, really. And when this kind of backhanded slap happened in Bible days, it was a demeaning, disrespectful act designed to shame or degrade their self-worth. Or self-respect. Humiliation. Now, since in today's culture it's unlikely that anybody's going to give us a backhanded slap to our cheek, There are a lot of other ways that people can attack our self-worth. And here's where I think Jesus was going with this. And our dignity. As Jesus reminded his disciples, some of those attacks are going to come merely because we're his disciples. Now, nobody's ever backhanded me, like, physically. But I have been backhanded verbally many times. Many times. Why? And, And the backhanded verbal assault was designed to take down my dignity my self-respect, my self-worth, to demean me. Okay, name-calling, you know, nasty accusations. Now follow me. I don't believe for a moment Jesus intended for us to encourage somebody to strike us again. By the phrase, turn the other cheek, he's simply teaching non-retaliation. Non-retaliation. Like I said, I've had a lot of people backhand me verbally, Um, and it never feels good. It always gives you a dirty feeling. It always makes you feel bad. 
But, but you know what I've learned to do? I don't retaliate. Listen, I don't retaliate because I've learned a secret. I've learned a secret. The secret is I give myself to God and I give them to God. And I get out of the way. I forgive and I get out of the way. Now, I mentioned this uh, last Sunday maybe, I think, or the one before. They all merged to me after a while. But, but I did say this. When the Bible says, avenge not yourselves, beloved, but give place to wrath, Give place means to get out of the way. Get out of the way. Give place to the wrath of God. In other words, if you're going to let God into your trying situation with other people, other people are vexing you, accusing you, hurting you, trying to demean you, if if you're going to let God loose on them, you've got to forgive. And when you forgive, you get out of the way. Give place to wrath. I can feel God behind me sometimes going, hey, Jeff, forgive and let me in on this. Forgive and let me at them. Now, I've learned that God can handle my enemies way better than I can. All right? So I've learned to forgive, to get out of the way, even though it's demeaning. And even though it attacks my self-worth and my self-respect and my dignity, I know that he hears it. I'm going to say that again. I know he hears it. And I know he sees it. All of scripture supports this interpretation. Listen to what Peter says about our Lord Jesus. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. Can we say that together? Did not revile in return. So there you go. What's what's Jesus refusing to do? Retaliate. When he suffered, he did not threaten. In other words... When he suffered at the hands of men, he didn't threaten them. I'm going to get you. I'm going to find you. I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to visit this back on you. No, Jesus. Jesus, look what it says Peter said. He did. Jesus committed himself to him who judges righteously. That's so beautiful. You say, well, Jeff, I've done that and nothing happened to them. Oh, I know the feeling. But let me tell you something. Nothing happened to them that you know about. They didn't, in other words, you're not in the house with them. You're not in the car with them. You're not going to work. Listen, when I have turned people over to God, sometimes I find out how the Lord dealt with them, and other times I never know. But here's what I do know. Let God be true and every man a liar. God can't lie. If God says, give place to wrath, and what does God say? Vengeance is mine. It's not yours. God, God has a corner on the vengeance market. So God says, you forgive, and, and, and don't try to retaliate, but just get out of the way. Just get out of the way. And, and then you have released me into the situation. And sometimes you'll find out how they were dealt with by God, and sometimes you won't. But always remember, if you never find out what they went through, you don't know what they went through. You don't know how God dealt with them. One chapter later, Peter tells us to do the same thing. 1 Peter 3, 9, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with what, everybody? That's, that's turn the other cheek right there. If you want to know what turn the other cheek is, there it is. Repay evil with blessing because to this you were called... 
Why? Everybody read the next words with me. So that you may inherit a blessing. How many of you want a blessing? How do you inherit a blessing? Well, I'll tell you how you inherit it. You, you give vengeance to God and you don't retaliate. Now, there is a balance to that as well, and I'm going to touch on it in a moment. So hang tough. But as a general rule, you don't retaliate. You give your enemy to God. You give your offender to God. You get out of the way, and you let him at them, and you don't retaliate. So turn the other cheek is the message of non-retaliation and of leaving the offender and yourself to God. Knowing your self-worth comes from God. Not the opinions or actions of others. I'm going to tell you, when I was a young pastor, um, my first church, the first couple of years pastoring, I made a guy in our congregation really mad at me. Can you believe that I did that? Me, little old Jeff? Anyway, I, 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 actually the truth was I hired somebody he didn't like. And that's what it came down to. So I got an invitation to go over to his house. By His wife calls, hey, can you just come over? Because me and, uh, let's say, John want to talk to you. <clears throat> and I said, oh, sure. So I came over totally. Listen, I was young and dumb. How many of you can remember when you were young and dumber? <laughs> I was young and dumb. And, and I had never experienced any trouble pastoring. It's amazing. I went two years before I experienced trouble. But... I walked into the house, and she sat me in this chair that, that you kind of get lost in. You know, you sit in it, and it leans way back, and, and you're in this deep cushion. And, and really, I didn't realize it, but she had just put me in a trap. <laughs> and John came in, and John leaned into my face, and John cut loose with words I didn't even know existed. He created new words for Merriam-Webster. And he, he dressed me down. And I couldn't get up. I'm in this chair. And his wife is just sitting over there, oh, you know, just, oh, gosh. You know, and this just terrible. Well, when he was done, I somehow got out of that chair. And I walked out, and I was shaking from head to toe. And I got to my car. And the Holy Ghost spoke to me. Thank God for the Holy Ghost. It's clear as a bell. And, and said this to me. Was that me? And I said, I hope not. <laughs> and the Holy Ghost said, then you don't need to worry about it. And, and the shakes left me. And I just drove. Kept, I mean, the, he left church, of course, and all of that. But um, bottom line is, I turned him over to God. And I forgave. And I could tell you a thousand stories. Because if you're in leadership, you're going to get it. People said to me, what's the hardest part about pastoring? I said, sheep bites. <laughs> I mean, come on. I can say with Paul, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. So, so everybody say, turn the other cheek it means don't retaliate. It does not mean ask somebody to harm you physically. Amen. Amen. Now, the second example Jesus gave regarding non-retaliation touches on the right to self-preservation. That's another right that sometimes we are to lay down in a given context. 
He said, if anybody wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now, again, we got to be careful here to note what Jesus is not teaching here. He is not saying that if somebody sues you unfairly, you're just giving what he's asking and throwing a little bit extra because you're so spiritual. No, no, that's not what he's saying. That is not what he's saying. He is not saying if somebody truly wrongs you in a legal sense, you're not to do anything about it. That's not what he's saying. The implication here is that a person is being sued for a legitimate reason. That's the, that's the feel you get from what Jesus said. The person being sued is being sued legitimately, probably for the repayment of a debt. And because the person being sued has no other assets with which to pay back the debt, he has to give up his tunic. Now, in Jesus' day, the tunic was an undergarment similar to a full-length shirt like what I'm wearing right here. This would be like a tunic in Jesus' day. In fact, it's where we get the phrase, uh, to give the shirt off one's back. It comes from this verse. Give the shirt off one's back. Jesus says that if the court determines you need to give up your tunic, instead of being angry and bitter, go ahead and show you're really sorry by giving up your cloak also. You're laying down your right. You're laying down your right to self-preservation. Now, as for the cloak, he says, give your cloak also. The cloak in Jesus' day was a means of self-preservation, literally, because it was an outer garment, like a coat, like we wear a coat in the wintertime. The cloak was their coat. And it was often needed to keep warm at night, and of course, warm during the day. In fact, it was so essential in Bible times to return the cloak that Jewish law literally required... If you, took, if you took somebody's cloak for a pledge for a debt, in other words, you said to them, how do I know you're going to pay me back? Well, I'll give you my cloak, my coat, as sort of a, a pledge until I give you what I owe you. Then you give me the, the cloak back. But the Bible said that you had to return it before the sun went down. You had to return the cloak because it's self-preservation. It was their coat. They could have frozen Now, the cloak, folks, is an illustration of self-preservation, and it can uh, represent a lot of things in our culture today. It might be some of our material possessions. It might also be something like a job or our social position, something that covers or protects us. What Jesus is saying here is that if somebody imposes on us any of those things, don't begrudge them and certainly don't retaliate. Instead, give the other person even more than he asked for. Jesus said in another place, Bless those that curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father who is in heaven. Why? For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. Every day he gives, he gives wicked people sunrise and warms them. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Those who hate God and curse him every day, God sends rain of blessing in hopes that they will turn and repent over the goodness of God. So he said, I want you to be like your father who is in heaven. So we've got to keep a much bigger picture than just, uh, well, you're suing me, so I'm going I'm to fight you back. But see, if, if they're rightly suing you, not only give the tunic, but say, here's a little more because 
I was in the wrong. Not easy to do, is it? But how many of you know when you do that, God sees it and God will take care of you? God will take care of you. Now, the third example Jesus gives of non-retaliation has to do with the right to self-determination or doing what you want. The right to do what you want. In other words, being a free person. He says, if anybody forces you to go a mile, go with him two miles. Now, let me give you a little background on this one. The Romans had passed a law in which a Roman soldier could require a person to carry his pack. But the law limited the soldier to carrying, or limited the law to carrying the load for no more than one mile. So if a soldier came up to you in, in Jesus' day in Rome, here comes a Roman soldier, and there you are, you're minding your own, you're doing something else, you're mowing the lawn, you're, you're out to eat, the family's with you, and a Roman soldier just comes and taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, I don't want to carry this. You carry this for me for a mile. You had to do it. You weren't free. It took away your self-determination. But now Jesus doubles down on that. And he says, no, if, if they ask you to go a mile, go with them too. How many of you say, I don't like that? Because if you're making me carry your pack, especially if I don't like you, I'm not about to go one inch further than the given mile. Then I'm giving you a look and I'm walking away. Come on, everybody. Don't look so holy at me. Your halos are not as shiny as you think. <laughs> but see, here's the deal. You can imagine how a Jew would feel, for instance. And they were under Roman tyranny. And here comes a hated Roman soldier interrupting what he's doing and making him carry a heavy pack for a mile. Not only was that an infringement on his right to self-determination, meaning his right to do what he wants, when he wants, being a free person. But it was possible also that this hated Roman soldier, who he considered to be an enemy in the first place, was even asking him to carry something that might be used against him or his people like weapons. Carry my sword. Carry my spear. Carry my shield. Wow, that would be hard. This is the law that was put in use when they tapped Simon of Cyrene on the shoulder and said, you carry Jesus' cross. And he had to do it. He had to do it. And by the way, Simon of Cyrene was a black man. What an honor. Don't you think that later... When he realized who Jesus was, and I guarantee he didn't carry that cross and not end up saved. Amen? Amen? Amen. So that law worked out for his good. While we don't have that kind of forced service in our culture today, we do have people who infringe on our right to self-determination, don't we? In other words, imposing on our time and our free will. It could be anything from a police officer, and that's fine, who pulls us over on the way to work. Or on the way to church. That's never happened to me. I'm not saying it happened to me. I've often wondered, man, what a, I better not speed. Because it would be just like a, a cop to pull me over. And my people to go by and wave. <laughs> Seeing a little bit. <laughs> I'm going to tell on Jesse here. 
Jesse and somebody else, they were driving somewhere, and, the, and they got pulled over. Now, I'm going to try to remember this right. And the cop said to them, somehow it came up, well, where do you go to church? And they said, turning point. He goes, oh, the cop says, oh, I listen to him on the radio all the time. And Jesse was thinking, well, we're about to get out of this ticket. <laughs> and then the cop went back to his car, wrote out a ticket, and handed it to Jesse. He says, say hello to Pastor Jeff. Ah, there you go. It's not always who you know. Amen. It can be a family member who calls you late at night and puts a guilt trip on you and says, I don't mean to impose, but let me impose. And you got to go a mile. Now, when that occurs, Jesus said that we're not just to do what we're asked, but we're to go an extra mile. Have you ever tried it? Because when you do the mile, you're only doing duty. But when you do the second mile, you start feeling a blessing. You really do. You start feeling a blessing. Because the first mile, you're only doing what you have to. The second mile, you're doing by grace and under obedience to Jesus Christ. And you never obey the Lord, but what you don't get blessed. Now, let me balance this out. A person who gets in the habit of just taking advantage of of your willingness to help should not be endlessly enabled. i got to balance this out. I'm balancing out what Jesus said. Jesus is teaching a principle of non-retaliation, the relinquishing of our rights in order to love and serve. But he's not telling us to be doormats and let people take advantage of our willingness to help ad infinitum, chronically, all the time. There's a balance. How many of you are with me? How many of you are glad I said that? How many of you have ever known somebody that realized, oh, they're just real good Christians, so I'm going to ask them, and I'm going to ask them again, and I'm going to ask them again, because they're good Christians. And they take advantage of your grace, and as you enable them, you're not helping them, and I'm going to deal with that in the next one. The last example Jesus gives of non-retaliation has to do with the right to self-indulgence. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you, Jesus said. Now again, we got to be clear here about what he's not saying. For instance, if a banker applied this saying of Jesus literally in their jobs as bankers, they'd be out of work in a month or less. Why? Because everybody that came in for a loan, they would feel like, well, I've got to do it because Jesus said do it. If anybody wants to borrow from you, give it to them. Clearly, he didn't mean that in a a sweeping, broad, paintbrush strokes. That's not what he meant. He's not saying that every time somebody asks us for money or other material possessions, that we are to automatically give them what they're asking for because Jesus said, if somebody wants to borrow from you, give it to them. If we did this, how many of you know you'd never make it through a downtown stroll without ending up with an empty wallet due to the street beggars. Come on. Come on. I mean, just from my house to here, if I go certain routes, I pass three or four people at red lights with signs asking me for money. Now, if I literally obeyed Jesus for every one of them, I'd be stopping and just handing them something every time. And I'd get here with nothing. So I can't be what he meant, right? The implication here 
is there's a real need. This is what Jesus is talking about. There's a real, genuine, legitimate need. And by giving to that person, you will meet that need in a legitimate way. Let me quote James. It's not up here on the screen because I wrote this down later, but let me read it to you. James 2, 15 through 16. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, or one of you, and one of you says, Oh, I see that you're hungry or you don't have any clothes. Depart in peace. Be warmed and filled. God bless you. I'll pray for you. Hallelujah. Glory to God. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? And John says in 1 John 2, I believe, he says, how dwells the love of God in you? So here's the balance. He's not telling us that every single time we're asked for something, we give it. We would never have any money for ourselves. What he's saying is when it's a legitimate need and you've got what it takes to meet the need and you do nothing, how dwells the love of God in you? Conversely, sometimes when somebody asks for a handout, the worst thing you can do for them is give them what they're asking for. Did I really say that as a pastor? Yes, I did. The worst thing you can do is give them what they're asking for. Because often you're only enabling some underlying behavior that's causing them to be where they are in the first place. It's the old saying, give a man a fish and he can eat a meal. Teach a man a fish and he can live a life. If you're always giving a man a fish and never helping him to get on his own feet, you're enabling him to live in a welfare mentality, a victim mentality. You're never teaching him to get on his own. Sometimes just giving money to a homeless person enables them to continue their drug or alcohol habit, habit, which is the reason they're homeless in the first place. I experienced this firsthand. I had a man come in one time years ago, and he was off the streets, and, he's, and, and he was so good at, at, at spinning a, a, a sad story for me, playing a violin. And again, I was young and dumb. He said, I don't have anything. If you can just give me a little bit of money to take a bus here and there, and, 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 and when I get to where I want to go, I'll be okay because I have family and so on and so forth. So I gave him money. And God just so ordered it that that day I was driving down a certain street, and there he was, and he could hardly hold himself up. And so I realized all I had done was I enabled his alcoholism. So there's wisdom with these things, Jesus said. There's balance with these things, Jesus said. Sometimes giving or loaning money to a family member who has a financial need because of the poor decisions that person has made only enables that person to continue making those poor decisions. So sometimes the worst thing you can do is help. What Jesus is addressing here is the tendency we have To hold on to our possessions for the purpose of self-indulgence when there's a legitimate need that we have the ability to meet. In other words, we don't meet someone's need because we want to spend it on ourselves in a self-indulgent manner. In other words, we're being selfish. We're not walking in a spirit of love. I help people pretty regularly that no one ever knows anything about. And it's a great joy to me. I love it. Especially at Christmas time. Or if I know somebody's in real need, I love, I love writing a check and sending it and shocking them. Amen. And I tell them, God told me to do it. Because I don't do it unless God tells me to do it. 
But I don't send it to somebody that I know I'm going to enable to continue in bad behavior. I send it to somebody who is genuinely in need. And I'm saving them from some real trouble. That's what I'm talking about. Now, could I spend that money on Jeff? Yeah, but Jeff's not worth it. It's not all about me. It's not all about you. Right? Both the Old and New Testaments confirm that God provides us with material resources so that we can use them to do good to others. Listen to this verse. Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it's in your power to do it. Amen? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, that's it for turn the other cheek. How many of you feel like you understand it a little bit better now? Come on. All right. So if somebody slaps you, don't turn the other cheek. Turn them over to God and walk away. Now, unless they come at you, then fight. Yes, I said that. Hey, if somebody comes after me and they're trying to kill me, I'm fighting back. If you come against my family, you're going to meet me. All right. Say with me, Jesus don't raise no wimps. But he does raise wise people. Amen. Now let's deal with the second one. This one is one of my pet peeves. What did Jesus mean when he said, don't judge? All right, let's look at what he said. Let's read it. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't consider the plank, everybody say two by four, in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye. He's saying, how can you operate on somebody else when you can't even see? Hypocrite, verse 5 says, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So many people use this saying of Jesus to shut down any kind of judgment regarding their lifestyle. Now, I've learned if you don't want somebody judging your lifestyle, it's because you've got something to hide. I don't care if you judge my lifestyle. You can judge my lifestyle all day long. Follow me around for a week, you'll probably be bored. Unless I'm on my motorcycle. Then you won't be bored. But otherwise, all I do is study and read, and I don't have a lot of thrills and spills. Judge my lifestyle all day. But I've learned. If I'm living in some kind of wickedness or sin, the last thing I want is judgment. And we're living in a very wicked culture. And that's why we're always hearing, don't judge. Jesus said, don't judge. Oh, you're quoting Jesus now. You know him? I didn't know you knew Jesus. Let's have a prayer meeting. If you ever notice, they love quoting that until they don't agree with you. Then they quickly judge you. Have you ever noticed that? The politically correct crowd? Now, the truth is, Jesus is not forbidding judging. You can't live life without judging. See, you're listening to me right now, and you're passing a judgment on what I'm saying. There's no way you cannot judge. I challenge you to try it. You can't do it. You will judge. Okay? He's forbidding hypocritical judgment. That's what he's forbidding. This is why he elaborated by saying, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, 
but you don't consider the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, there's a plank in your own eye. Then he starts verse 5 with hypocrite. So what's he talking about? The hypocritical kind of judging. The person Jesus is directing these words to, don't judge, is the person who's actually doing things in their own life equally as bad as or worse than the people they're judging. The person being judged has a speck in their eye, but Jesus shows the person judging them with a plank, a big piece of wood in their eye, which would blind them. He said, you can't operate on somebody else's life by setting them straight, getting them on the right path, if you yourself are off the right path. You can't give what you don't have. You can't fix something crooked if you're crooked too. That's what he's saying. How can you straighten your brother's life out when your own life is in even worse shape? You ever had somebody try to fix you and you knew their life was a great big mess? Kind of makes you mad, doesn't it? Paul told the Romans this very same thing. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment are doing the same things. That's Romans 2.1. Now, Jesus finished his message on judging by saying that once your own life is cleaned up, you're free to judge another and to help them with their problem. First, he said, first remove the plank from your own eye. Get your own life right. And then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So at the close of his message on judgment, what is Jesus telling us? He's saying, judge away. If your own life is clean, then you're free to judge. You can judge. we got to judge, folks. We have to judge right from wrong, good from bad. You see, our culture is so messed up, so completely and thoroughly and profoundly confused that we're being told we can't judge anything. We can't judge if you're a boy or a girl. We we can't judge if, if you're in moral sin or not. We can't judge if something is light or dark or right or wrong. We can't judge. We're not supposed to be judging anything, and that's insanity. We have to judge. We must judge. If you don't judge, you're going to be destroyed. Every book I read, I judge it. Every person I listen to, I pass a judgment. Are they in the spirit or not? Are they theologically accurate or not? Should I listen to what they're saying or not? I mean, what is discernment? Discernment is judging. So we've got to judge. This whole thing of don't judge, that's a guilty society trying to turn every judgmental eye off of them because they don't want to be addressed in their sin. Come on. Jesus said in John 7, 24, don't judge by appearance superficially and arrogantly, but judge fairly and righteously. Notice in 724 of John, he's telling us, judge, but just be sure it's fair and it's right. What in the world was that? All right, I'm, I'm done. I hope that blessed you. I hope that helped you. I like clearing these things up. Because I can't stand Jesus or the word being misrepresented out there and abused and... and all that we see all the time. 
All right, how many of you, does anybody have any questions before we go tonight? We have a few minutes. Any questions based on what I've covered? Well, she's going to make you go way back there, Aaron. Or anything you thought of this week from last week. Uh, Go ahead and ask away, and we'll try to get to you. It's more of a comment than it is a, a question, Pastor, if I can have that liberty. Okay. Okay. My granddaughter is 23, and uh, we went overboard, and especially me, uh, out of love and concern for her to help her. And by doing that, my grandson called me, and he said, Mama, why did you buy her, help her buy another car? You've already given her a car. And I said, well... She needed help. And he said, Mama, you are enabling her bad behavior. You're not helping her. You're hurting her. She has the mentality of a Mm 15-year-old. She needs to grow up, and the only way she can do that is to learn to walk on her own two feet and face the consequences of her decisions. Right. Sometimes what we think is love is not love at all. Right. We, We love them. But, but love can be destructive if you're not careful because you, you want to help them because you love them, but you end up not helping. All right, any other questions? Right back here. Hi, Pastor Jeff. Hi. I uh, just want to say, first of all, uh, what you guys did as far as for putting on the Passover Seder, that was awesome. Amen. That really was. Uh, but that gave put a couple of questions in my head, uh, specifically about as far as for holo, uh, holy convocations. Uh, it says, do no work during those particular times. Did that also include the Levitical priests, or were the priests still supposed to go ahead and provide sacrifices? In the Old Testament? Yes, sir. On the Sabbath? Yes, sir. I don't or believe on... they did anything on the Sabbath. Okay. I, I'd have to look it up, but I don't think they did. Okay. Um, I'd have to look that up. Okay. Uh, another question. This is just sort of like an aside. Uh, the things that you're going to be doing for the book on this new session, mm-hmm. are you going to be putting that up on Facebook or no? The recordings, the videos? Yes, sir. Probably. Yes. Okay. Thank you, sir. Yes. Anyone else? Okay. Right there. How do you correct someone in love? Tell them the truth in love. Just tell them the truth. Now, you, you, different strokes for different folks. Some people, you have to really be careful how you correct. Um, but when it comes right down to it, there comes a time when if you don't correct, you're really not loving them. And so I try to say, look, I love you. You know that I love you. But I have to tell you the truth here. It says, tell the truth, speak the truth in love. Speak truth. I learned long ago, Jeff can't change anybody. I learned preaching. Because I used to, when I first started pastoring, I just knew. I just thought, well, everybody out there is like me. Everybody's full of zeal. Everybody loves God. Everybody's trying to walk in the Spirit. And I learned that there's all kinds of different people that go to church. And so I started trying to change them. And if you want to have a nervous breakdown in about a month, try to change people in your own strength. I learned one thing changes people. That's the truth of Scripture. But it must be spoken in love, not with a furrowed brow, not 
finger pointing. Uh, but can I just tell you what the Bible says? Here's what the Bible says. And, you know, you go think about what the Bible says. And I left it there. And um, that's the only thing that's going to change them. And then they have to deal with the truth. That's how I do it. Okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, I have a question about what you covered last, last Wednesday. One of the questions, I think the big topic was the versions of the Bible, different mm-hmm. versions. Last Wednesday, yeah. Yeah, last Wednesday. And uh, I just wondered what you th- how you felt about Westcott and Hort's influence on Bible versions. Well, okay, Westcott and Hort, you're talking about the Greek text. Yes, yes. Uh, well, okay, conservative theologians, and of course, if you don't know what Westcott and Hort is, it's a Greek text that is used to interpret into English or Spanish or uh, whatever language you're trying to interpret in. We could get real technical here, and that's a technical question because there's the Textus Receptus and there's Westcott and Hort. There's the majority text and the minority text. Westcott and Hort uh, are deemed to be fairly liberal. In other words, there's deletions. There's, there's um, things that I try to get Bible versions out of the Textus Receptus. And when I have more time on a Wednesday night, I'll share that with you folks. Because I know that's Greek to you. <laughs> no kidding. But anyway... <laughs> So I, I believe Westcott and Hort come under the gun a lot for being liberal and having deleted a lot. So anyone else? Yes, way over there. Last Wednesday, um, when you were talking about David um, prophesying in the Psalms. Yes. When, because a lot of his psalms are prophetic. Yes. And so when I read it, it's kind of confusing to me because I ask, is this what he's feeling and going through? I mean, I realize that God mm-hmm. prophesied. <clears throat> he put his word out there so that it would come to pass. But did David know that what he was saying or writing in the psalms I, was the, being the, prophetic? Right. Yeah, the the Old Testament people um, sometimes understood what they were predicting, but the Scripture says that they they wanted better understanding. They longed for better understanding of what they were seeing. Uh, It says even the angels didn't understand the plan of salvation. They desired to look into and understand what was unfolding. I think... uh, you know, it's been said that prophecy, that is Bible prophecy, is truth through personality. In other words, you can read Isaiah. Isaiah is very different from Jeremiah, which is very different from Daniel, which is very different from Malachi and Amos and so on and so forth. God bent his truth through personality. But the message of Scripture is that it was inerrant. It was without error, that when God moved on David and the, and the prophets and Moses and the rest, when he moved through them to write scripture, it moved through seamlessly, though it has the flavor of the personality of the writer. So, uh, you know, you can read me two verses, and I'll tell you if it's Isaiah. I can spot Jeremiah a mile away. I know Daniel. I can tell you who Amos is. In other words, when you read them enough, you can see, well, they're all different personalities, different men from different backgrounds 
you know, over 40 different authors over 1,500 years. But they all had their own sort of, if we could call it, flavor. It went through their personality. And Scripture says they wanted to better understand what it was they were seeing. Isaiah, Jeremiah, all of them. But they didn't get the full picture until it all unfolded when the New Testament arrived. Okay? I think David had an inkling for sure. He for sure knew that a Messiah was coming. Oh, yeah. Yes. Hey, Pastor Jeff. Um, preface this first with I'm not doubting, but I'm asking a question to try to wrap my head around and understand sure. it better. It's been said uh, the, uh, the Godhead, the triune, mm-hmm. uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy mm-hmm. Spirit. And yet there's many times in the Bible, in particular one that keeps coming to my head all the times, when Jesus went to the garden to pray the day before. Mm-hmm. And said, Father, please take this if there's any other way to take this mm-hmm. from me. If there's another cup. Right. You know. So I'm trying to understand if he's God. Why is he praying to God? In heaven. I'm not saying he's not God. What I'm saying is, how does that try head, the three of them work? Well, remember, he, <laughs> all, he was all man, all God, all God, all man. So as a man, in his manness, and the Bible says he was tempted in all points like we are, yet he didn't sin. So he was tempted, like we are, <clears throat> to not go with God's will. But he did not sin. We get tempted to not go God's will, and we sin. Okay? So as man, he's praying to God. He's in a human body. He's wrapped in flesh. He's praying, God, help me. Help me in this struggle. And so I see that Jesus, as all man, while still all God, having never sinned, is praying, God, help me. And he left us an example. That when we come, therefore, boldly to the throne of grace, like he modeled for us, we say, Lord, uh, I need grace to help me in this time of need. I need mercy. That's what he was asking for. I need grace. I need mercy. God, help me. This is hard. Because as a man, he was going to feel those nails. He was going to feel that whip. He was going to feel the slaps across his face and his hair being pulled out, his beard. He knew what he was about to experience. And so as man, he's saying, God, help me. He modeled for us um, how to call out like that, how to depend on grace. And so I don't know if that helps or not. But uh, he was, again, we have to remember, even in the wilderness when he was tempted, he became hungry. And that's when Satan really hit him. Hey, I know you're starving. Turn these stones into bread. So he had to deal with the devil, not only as God, but as a man, and rebuke him. Okay? Yes. Okay. God's all-knowing. Was all-knowing in the past, is all-knowing in the present, is all-knowing for the future. Mm-hmm. Why did God create man mm-hmm. when he already knew mm-hmm. what we were going to do and that millions and millions and millions and millions and billions mm-hmm. would take themselves to hell mm-hmm. why make man in the first place he walked with Adam in the garden mm-hmm. 
in the evening, and they, they, they fellowship. God had man. We lost the mic. I'm oh, sorry. So God fellowshiped with Adam, and that mm-hmm. maybe satisfied a need God yeah. had for fellowship? I know where you're going. Right. And this is a, a top theological question of mine. This bothered me for a long time. Why did he go with it? There's a part of it that is a mystery. Okay? And I'm not afraid to say some things are a mystery. And I believe that we will understand. This is one we'll understand better on the other side. Because if it's me, I don't go with it. I'm being honest with you. I don't go with it. Because I know that billions are going to perish. It has to do with redemption, with the plan of redemption that was hatched in glory before time began. Because let's remember, Christ offered himself before time began. Now that's a mind bender right there. Before anything began, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost had a council. And God said, I'm going to create man, and he's going to fall, and, I need, and who will be the redeemer? Jesus submitted himself. He was chosen to be our redeemer before time began. Now, that's a mystery. So, I don't have a full answer for that one. I don't know. He, God was, now we have to remember, he's just, he's fair, This is one of those questions where you have to know he didn't do anything wrong. He didn't do anything evil. He didn't do anything wicked. He was totally just, totally fair, totally righteous, totally good. So for whatever his reason was, it was right, even if we can't understand it. So I had to put that in my little file, things I don't understand but will someday. I trust him. Amen. Amen. We're out of time. We're out of time. I'd, I'd love to take questions all night, but we're out of time. I can't believe you asked that question because that was my question for years. All right, what we're going to do quickly, Jesse, bring them down, and we're just going to take a couple of minutes, and we're going to recognize Jesse's graduates. We need the microphone, Aaron, and go ahead and invite them down. If you're graduating tonight, come on down. Yep. All right, Brashanica Thompson. Felicia Garrett, Stephen Ornales, Chelsea Carranza, Josiah and Bridget Salyer, Amy Tyre, Jeff Hill, Omar Diaz, John Housh, Latin Hamby, and Tina Jackson. Tell them what they're graduating These are from. all uh, receiving a certificate for going through the Breaking the Barriers 2, which is the uh, Way of the Master Intermediate class of uh, evangelism. Okay? And we're working on starting the basic training again probably after Easter, which is uh, Breaking the Barriers 1. If any of you guys are interested, uh, not sure about the time frame right now, whether it's going to be at 1030 or 12 o'clock. But I want to clear one thing up, okay? I know you were all judging me, okay? (laughs) But I was a passenger in that vehicle, okay? (laughs) Pastor got most of the story right, but... I was a passenger in that vehicle. Thank you. That's good, Jesse. All right, give them a hand of appreciation. Congratulations.
They're going to be going to the streets and witnessing. Let's all stand together. Come on, Jesse. You were driving, weren't you? Come on. No. <laughs> he just told me who it was. Is he here? It was Earl. Okay. Because you were afraid, well, they're in my class, and they're going to think that I'm a speeder. Okay. We're not judging you anymore. I was, I was stumbling. I was judging you bad on the front row. You ought not be on the front row. You ought to be back there. No. All right. Lord, we just thank you right now for the goodness of God, the blessing of God. Let's just sing one chorus before we go. Let's sing now. I need thee, oh, I need thee, and every hour. Everybody, you're dismissed. God bless you. We love you in the Lord. Amen.